Hello and welcome to Subject to Change with me, Russell Hawk. And welcome to part two of the story of how Maximilian and Carlotta, the Habsburg power couple, became emperor and empress of Mexico in 1864. In part one, we followed the story up to their triumphant entry into Mexico City. Let's see what happens next. So the entry into Mexico City, that's been a huge triumph and the celebrations have been fantastic. But now the hard work is starting and Maximilian is going to have to get down to governing. So so what is the nature of his rule? My sense is that this isn't a constitutional monarchy exactly. It's Maximilian who's going to be taking the decisions, isn't it? Yeah, so you're, you're right. It's not a constitutional monarchy. Maximilian wants it to be one. And in fact, he draws up a constitution, which he writes himself in, in league with Mexican politicians in Europe. But the situation in Mexico is so volatile, uh, Benito Juarez undefeated, that he's never able to implement that. So you're right that personal power is, and, and essentially ruling by decree, is, is, is how this empire is going to be governed. With the complication, which we'll come back to, that there is there's dual, there's 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 dual power essentially because the French retain enormous control over what's going on in Mexico, and indeed, in terms of the military command, that is entirely in the hands of the French, more or less. But what does Maximilian do? It was your question. So, well, his opponents would say very little. He is a man who loves to prevaricate, to disgust, to postpone. There's all kinds of problems in Mexico that need to be addressed. Um, but perhaps the most crucial is the finances. Now, remember, listeners who've been paying attention, the reason <laughs> there was an intervention in the first place was that Mexico suspended its foreign debt payment. So the Mexican treasury was bankrupted after civil war. Uh, a Maximilian government fares little better. Enormous loans have been taken out in Europe to cover immediate expenditure. But Maximilian has to pay monthly sums to the French government to maintain the French army in Mexico because Napoleon III, as he said, he wants glory on the cheap and he's done what we might call today a leverage buyout. The cost of the conquest of Mexico is going to be paid for by Maximilian's government. If it isn't, Napoleon III can withdraw his troops because this is a treaty. It's a legal agreement between two sovereign um, states. And Mexico is essentially bankrupt. So, but rather than reforming the finances, what Maximilian does is he sets up a commission, the, you know, th throughout history, what any government does if it doesn't want to take immediate action that will report back to him and he'll make reforms. And in the meantime, he's going to go on a tour of his kingdom. Now, this is something that he's often criticized for. His opponents call him a royal tourist. He's, he loves to go out in the countryside and, and see Mexico and see his subjects. Maximilian would argue, that for a monarch who's completely unknown in Mexico, that's exactly what you need to be doing. So I'll leave it to listeners to, to decide whether it's, um, uh, it's practical politics or not. On the flip side, what he does do very effectively is in he is able to win over Juaristas, supporters of Benito Juarez, because, as we said, he's a liberal. Now, again, listeners have been paying close attention. <laughs> we'll remember that the whole reason, the whole reason why a monarchy was required in the first place and called for by Mexican conservatives was because Benito Juarez had attacked the Catholic Church, crucially nationalizing church property. Now, instead of overturning those um, reforms, um, those liberal reforms, which is what his allies expect, he confirms them. Now, this does alienate his conservative supporters, but it does win over Juarista to his government. And in fact, people who have, who have served um, with, under Benito Juarez's government, who fought against conservatives in that civil war, come over into Maximilian's cabinet, become his supporters. So he, he's, he's effective at winning over some, um, supporters of Benito Juarez because of his, his charisma and his liberal policies. So it's a mixed record, I would say. He, he win, he, he has a vision for the empire, which is liberal. It does win over some high profile converts, but perhaps the long, you know, the longer term, deeper problems of the Mexican government, um, are not addressed as, as quickly as they should be. One of the things that puzzled me in this story is how the Conservatives continually undermine Maximilian. He may be more liberal than they'd like, but compared to Juarez, mm. I mean, when you look at how the church behaves, it seems like, like they're cutting their own throats. Yeah. You're absolutely right, Russell, and it's extraordinary. They, um, they, I mean, I suppose that what the conservatives would say, and this is the sort of very clerical reactionary wing of the conservative party, Catholics who believe in the, you know, the supremacy of, of, of the Pope would argue is that they're being true to the Catholic religion. 
But from a political point of view, um, it's disastrous because they are they undermine the empire. So they withdraw active support. In some cases, they openly uh, clash with the government and work against it. Um, there's, a, there's a great quote by the Archbishop of Mexico, um, a man called Labastida, who is one of the great uh, reactionaries and refuses to compromise. And he says that the only thing that Mexico has in common with the current century, i.e. the 19th century, is the date. Nothing more. So this is when the, when Maximilian and his uh, friend and French commanders tell them we need to, you know, we need to have church-state relations similar to what we have in France. Uh, you know, it's a kind of sort of this is the, the spirit of the, of the century in progress. He says, yeah, it just doesn't apply in Mexico and works to undermine, undermine Maximilian's government. Yeah, absolutely. I think there was one occasion, and it may be before Maximilian got there when it was just the French, where the French ended up pulling up some cannons and pointing them at the church doors if, if the archbishop yeah. wouldn't open them. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, this is, this is because La Bastida believes that the whole point of the intervention and, uh, and indeed the creation of the monarchy is re reactionary at heart and is going to overturn these reforms. And this is where the complexity of Napoleon III comes in because Napoleon III specifically writes to every single military commander and he says, I will not allow my flag to become the flag of reaction in Mexico because Napoleon III sees himself uh, as, a, as a liberal. But also, if you go back to the French Revolution, the first one, 1789, one of the cornerstones of that of the settlement of the revolution is the nationalization of church property, which then goes into the hands right. of the peasants. So what is it by the mid 19th century, that's a very uh, uncontroversial policy. In fact, you know, to overturn that in France would be sort of, you know, would be madness. I mean, it's hard to think of a, a sort of parallel i don't know um you know giving re returning the uh, when margaret thatcher sold off uh um you know social housing returning that to, to councils or whatever something like that it's a sort of cornerstone of 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 of, 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 of a certain kind of strand of politics in mexico of course it's only just happened so they, they, they there's these completely different and this 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 juncture really between the between um the two visions for for the countries but things are going pretty well i mean even with the conservatives being difficult the French armies are there. They've got some pretty competent generals. Bazaine, I think the French general is very competent. They've got Mejia, the indigenous general, and he's excellent. Juarez is being pushed back and back and back. Maximilian is perhaps <laughs> in a slightly dilettante way. He's, uh, he's, he's bringing the liberals on side, though. So what, what goes wrong? So you're right. They they have um, so Achille Bazin is the French commander in chief. So he's the fourth one, but he will be the last one. Uh, and you're you're right. He is he is very competent, although it's quite a low bar given what's gone before. <laughs> uh, and some listeners might be surprised to hear that he's competent in Mexico because he's better known for his role in the Franco-Prussian War, where he um, yes. where he is. Yeah, I don't think. Even with the best one in the world, many people would say that he, he, he conducted himself well in that conflict. But it's a, I think that's a case of being promoted above his pay grade. Um, he was, he had, he, he was a, a very brave, very heroic soldier who worked his way up from a private soldier to become a marshal of France. He, he led from the front. Uh, and at this point, he's, he's, he's a man of action. He's cut his teeth in the Foreign Legion, in, in Carlist Wars, in North Africa, etc. And he's, he's very good, you know, organizing 30,000 men in Mexico. And remember that um, Benito Juarez's armies have been defeated at, at Puebla. So it's really now just guerrilla forces, except for a few regular units, which are pretty prickly um, picked off by the French army, because, of course, the French army is well supplied and equipped and disciplined. Um, and is able to to win when it's in open warfare. Add to that the imperialistas. You mentioned uh, uh, Thomas Mejia. Mejia is an absolutely phenomenal military uh, commander, a cavalry officer, uh, in, again, one of the indigenous peoples of Mexico. Actually, um, he cut his teeth fighting against the Apaches in, in North Mexico, then against the US, then in the Civil War. Uh, and he's a, fan, he's, a, he's a very effective commander. So they pushed the Juaristas right back to the extremities of Mexico. But there is a problem, um, which is that Benito Juarez remains undefeated. And so there is a rival power. And while you do have effective military command under the French and indeed imperialista generals, you also have people like Charles Dupin. Now, Charles Dupin is sort of the opposite of, of Bazaine. Bazaine is he's a ruthless uh, soldier and is very happy for the sort of, you know, counterinsurgent tactics of colonial warfare to be deployed in Mexico. But they're carried out by people like Charles Dupin. Now, Charles Dupin is basically a soldier of fortune. He was actually sacked from, um, kicked out of the French army um, for looting 
uh, the, uh, the the palace in in Peking in during the Second Opium War, uh, and then selling all of that loot in Paris, uh, and that was too much even for the Second Empire and the French, and he was fired. But as soon as the intervention in Mexico um, is launched, he sort of he's, he gets involved because he said, you know, I, I, I excel in these conditions. Um, and, and what that means is he's put in charge of something called the counter guerrillas, right? This is a force set up to deal with the Juarista insurgency, which by now has become guerrilla warfare. A Charles Dupin's métier is torture, executions uh, and um, burning down of whole villages at the slightest provocation. So this is a problem that you're going to see in, uh, in much later Western military interventions is how do you win over hearts and minds, no matter how noble your moderate liberal ideas are at nation building and regenerating Mexico, when you are burning down villages, killing innocent people, and even people who may not be innocent in your eyes, i.e. maybe they are Juaristas, are being brutally tortured, murdered and, 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 and done away with. And actually, Charles Dupin, he writes this extraordinary letter to his niece where he says, I have waged an atrocious war. If I were Mexican, how much hatred I would have for the French and how I'd make them suffer. And you just think, well, if that's what he's writing to his niece, I mean, what's actually going on on the ground? Right? I mean, how bad is it? And that's the, that's the version that he's presumably, you know, uh, dressed up to be slightly more palatable for his, for his, for his family. So you've got this contradiction between Maximilian's lofty ambitions and the reality on the ground, which is, which is, which is murder and, and rape and, and destruction from, from parts of the French army. So you've got, and of course, you've got Benito Juarez. So you've got an, an, an opposition that people can rally to. And this resistance is heroic. I mean, he's wandering to sort of northern deserts of Mexico with um, sort of two, three hundred people by the summer of 1865. And he's on the point of defeat. What goes wrong? What changes? Well, there's first the financial problems are never solved, but we'll come on to that because the second thing that changes is, is, is more important at this stage. The U.S. Civil War comes to an end in April 1865. Now, Napoleon III shows himself to be a terrible foreign policy analyst because in March of 1865, he writes to Maximilian and says, don't worry, the U.S. Civil War is going to go on for, for a much longer. Uh, and uh, within a month, you know, Robert E. Lee is surrendered. This, this means that the United States of America, which had been terrified of meaningfully opposing the French intervention in Mexico because it might bring France into the, into the Civil War, it might mean the recognition of the Confederacy, it could mean all kinds of terrible things for the Union. That's no longer a concern. There had been an arms embargo, i.e. you couldn't sell any arms to any country, but really that just means Mexico because that's where the conflict is. That's lifted in May 1865. Juaristas are able to get credit from, from U.S. supporters. And there's a lot of sympathy in the U.S. Um, because they, you know, they see this very much in terms of defending republics and democracies and so on and so forth. So Benito Juarez is able to resupply. He's able to rearm. And crucially, French troops are withdrawn from the border of Mexico, of the U.S.-Mexican border, because Napoleon III is terrified that what had, was meant to be a very simple plan that would have been done in the year 1862 is going to spark a conflict, a clash, a border clash with U.S. troops. And suddenly you've gone from a simple conflict that was meant to be over in 1862, raiding out the glory of France in Latin America, to war with the United States. So the French army is pulled back from the border, literally at the point that it's about it's going to capture Benito Juarez, who's holed up in a place called El Paso del Norte, which listeners will know, which is which is on the U.S. border. Listeners will know much better today as Ciudad Juarez, named after Benito Juarez, um, and it's it's a border a border town at the time, and now of course a city. But eventually, the French the French leave completely, don't they? Is this pressure from America, or is this that uh, they've run out of what? It's both. It's the difficulty of defeating Benito Juarez is the first first point, right? And that's they've had that difficulty they've had since eighteen sixty two. Combined with the fact that Maximilian is proving to be, a, a, in the eyes of Napoleon III, a woefully ineffectual ruler of Mexico. He's doing all kinds of things like expanding um, free education and opening academies of arts and sciences. And he writes all of these letters saying, look how much I've achieved. Um, to which the, the, you know, the foreign ministry and Napoleon III respond is we, uh, no, no one appreciates more than us the benefits of universal education. However, the military, political and economic organization of the country is in complete disarray. When are you going to do something about it? Now, Maximilian fails to resolve the finances. It's debatable whether anyone ever could have done. And at the end of 1865, he's unable to maintain those monthly payments to keep the French army in Mexico. So he writes a letter to Napoleon III and says, well, look, you know, um, I can't make this month's payments, but obviously we're friends. We all want this to work. Can you just cover the cost? Napoleon III says absolutely not. He uses this as the occasion to do what he's been wanting to do for some time, which is announce that French troops are coming home. He's under pressure domestically 
because it's never been popular in France. No one really understands why 30,000 French troops are in Mexico and what's the possible benefit to France of that. You've got Prussia uh, rising and, and problems in Europe kind of bubbling away and having 30,000 troops in Mexico um, doesn't seem to be a, a particularly useful deployment of the French army. But it's the US opposition that's crucial. In, th in that same month that Maximilian writes to say, I can't make the payments, um, William Sirwood, the US Secretary of State, writes, um, essentially gives Napoleon III an ultimatum, get your troops out of Mexico or it will be war with the United States. So the French troops are leaving. They don't leave right away, do they? The, uh, Napoleon gives them a bit of a bit of time, but they're on their way out. So this seems to be the ideal moment for Maximilian to say, I came here because of Napoleon III. He stabbed me in the back. Um, I'm washing my hands a bit. Um, so so why doesn't he? Well, that's that's absolutely in fact, what he what what he does do, because Napoleon III in January eighteen sixty six announces to the to the uh, to the French people that the troops are coming home. He, it's a mission accomplished moment. He says the reason they're coming home is because we've won, and that the government is consolidated. Maximilian's regime is consolidated. Minto Quares has been defeated, um, and therefore uh, French troops are coming home. Mission accomplished moment. Um, and as you say, phase withdrawal, they're not going to come back until the end of 1867. So that gives Maximilian, you know, nearly two years um, of French support. When Maximilian hears that Napoleon III has broken his word, and um, remember, he was desperate to get Maximilian to go because yeah. it, it, incredibly embarrassing to organize and orchestrate regime change with 30,000 French troops and hundreds of, of millions of, of francs, only for the monarch not to turn up and govern that regime. So he writes Maximilian several letters saying that, you know, whatever happens, my support will not fail you. His support has massively failed because he's bringing troops home. Maximilian, when he learns of this, is he's sort of rather petulant. He says, well, fine, if you don't want me here, I'll abdicate. I'm coming, you know, that's it, it's done, it's over. I'm, go I'm going home, which would have been a sensible option. <laughs> but when his wife, Carlotta, uh, discovers that this decision, she goes apoplectic. She is furious. Now, remember, Again, people have to have very good memories. She is the daughter of um, of the Belgian king, but her mother is the daughter of a French king, Louis-Philippe. Louis-Philippe was the king in 1848 of France who abdicated. And this was told to Carlotta uh, as a humiliation and shame upon the family, which would never be erased. Ah. So when she would have been eight years old, but her grandmother um, would always, you know, sort of would tell her that this had ruined the family, um, that they were, you know, they were laughing stock, and that they could have, that they didn't, that Rudolf didn't need to abdicate. He just needed to show a little bit of backbone. So Carlotta writes a ten-page memorandum to her husband, explaining that he is a coward and an idiot. And, a, and a, that he has humiliated um, the name of Habsburg, so on and so forth, and that he must not abdicate it. Um, and I don't know if any listeners will ever received a ten-page memorandum from, <laughs> from from their partner, but you know you've got to seriously consider your 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 life choices if you do. Which is what Maximilian does now. Carlotta has a plan. She will go back to Europe. She will speak to Napoleon III. She will lay the letters in front of him where he has said that his support will never fail, and he will she will shame him into changing his mind. And how well does that go? Well, as you might expect, Napoleon III, and I have quite a lot of sympathy with him here, very keen to avoid this meeting with Carlotta. So she sails back <laughs> to Europe. She arrives in August of 1866. And we can say, can I come to the, you know, the palace? Can I see Napoleon III? He's like, well, no, I'm not feeling very well. Why don't you go to Belgium and see your brother first? And you know, all of this stuff. But eventually, Carlotta, as I say, she's, she's um, you know, made of sterner stuff than that. She says, I will literally break into the palace. Um, wherever you are, I will find you, sort of Liam Neeson style. And um, she manages to get the meeting with Napoleon III. And she's done her homework. She's brought the letters. She's brought a memorandum explaining how the empire can work, how the finances can be reformed, etc. When she lays the letters that Napoleon III has written, saying, my support will never fail you, in front of, um, of, of the emperor of the French, he reads them and he breaks down and he starts crying. But he doesn't change his mind. Um, he's, the decision has been, the decision has been made. Uh, and, um, you know, Carlotta makes many arguments, but all of them fall on deaf ears. There's no way that Napoleon III will change his mind. He is not going to go to war with the United States of America and um, to prop up his protege in Mexico. And so, um, eventually, to cut a long story short, she's, um, she's sort of fobbed off, um, with this idea that she'll talk to his ministers. And if she can persuade the ministers, then they'll persuade Napoleon III. But a decision's been made, uh, and it, and it comes to nothing. Now, she's, she's got one more trick up her sleeve. 
Because, remember, Maximilian's liberal reforms had alienated his Catholic constituency in Mexico. Right. If the Pope can um, essentially, uh, to use a terrible anachronism, sign off, if a concordat can be um, agreed with the Pope, <laughs> then any good Catholic has to get behind them. Because although you might agree with the, uh, disagree with them, um, the Pope has agreed to them. And of course, that trumps your own personal views on, on, on the situation. So Carlos will go to the Vatican. She will speak to the Pope. Uh, and um, win over uh, him to Maximilian's liberal reforms and thereby get Catholic Mexico on board. Now, she has convinced her husband to stay in Mexico on on the proviso that she will be able to persuade Napoleon III to support him, and she's failed in that. And so Maximilian's life, and indeed his decision to stay, uh, etc., is essentially riding on, on, on this mission to the, to the Vatican. And it's an enormous amount of pressure. And it's under that pressure that, that Carlotta begins to become somewhat delusional. She thinks that Napoleon III is the principle of evil upon earth. That's what he, um, that's what she calls him. Uh, and is, is showing a little sort of alarming signs of paranoia. She thinks that, you know, she's being watched by Napoleon III's spies and so on and so forth. But she's still operating fairly normally. Um, and is, and um, she goes to meet the Pope. The, the talks are inconclusive. Um, there's another meeting. And again, you know, not much is decided. And the Pope's slightly worried about her, her mental state, as many of her entourage are, but you know, you know, empresses, uh, they, 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 they can do what they want. <laughs> There's going to be a follow-up meeting, but um, she can't wait for it. So she, very early one morning, she insists that her servants drive her to the Vatican. Um, she breaks into the Vatican, just sort of walks past the man on the door. And how do you stop the Empress of Mexico? Demands to see the Pope. Of course, you know, there's no appointment. It's highly irregular, but the Pope is eventually sort of roused in his papal pajamas to come out into the, uh, into the, um, and see Carlotta. Instead of discussing church-state relations, she collapses in uncontrollable sobs on the floor, screaming that Napoleon III is out to kill her and that he, her entire entourage, her servants, the politicians that have come from Mexico, people she's known and worked with for, you know, for years now, are in his pay and are hired assassins. So um, this, is, this is, you know, in the long and short of it is she's, her mind is unraveled, she's lost all reason and she wouldn't have been able to convince the Pope anyway, uh, which is Pope Pius IX, I think it's the ninth, I'll get my piouses wrong, who had just declared that um, the liberalism was anathema to God, essentially, an evil. So all of Maximilian's reforms have, would never have been accepted anyway. But perhaps more importantly, um, Carlotta has completely lost all reason and, in fact, is eventually bundled out at the Vatican and sequestered in Miramar, uh, and then later her Belgian family take her to Belgium, and she never returns to Mexico. Do we know what her illness was? People say, oh, you know, her mind collapsed or it unraveled, but... Is there any medical diagnosis of this? Yeah, uh, well, it's always tricky diagnosing from the yeah. past. And I did speak to um, a psychologist about this, and um, they they did explain what it might be. But I forgot, <laughs> I forgot what the term is, which is poor. Or just say she went mad. Yeah, we'll I mean, she did. She so mad. it's, if, you know, when we have any listeners out there who are sort of amateur or professional psychologists, it's, it's at delusion and paranoia. Uh, which comes across in her writings. Uh, as I say, she calls Napoleon III the principle of evil on earth, Paris is Babylon, and that Napoleon III is trying to kill her, right? She genuinely believes that she's trying to be poisoned. She refuses to eat any food that's, um, that's not been prepared and, and killed in front of her, right? So she, there's one servant she trusts in the apartments in Rome where she's staying. Um, she's sort of, there's live chickens tied to tables, uh, and or she, uh, which have to be slaughtered and cooked in front of her. Um, and she will only eat nuts and oranges. So things that, you know, she can peel herself that, that haven't been poisoned. But then she also has moments of lucidity where she seems to be perfectly normal and understands what's going on uh, and other times where, where she isn't. So if anyone thinks that, that, you know, that's enough to go on, then they can perhaps get in touch. But she never, she never recovers fully. Um, and of course, you know, in the 19th century practice was to sequester and isolate people who exhibited these symptoms, um, which I think, um, you know, nowadays we would say is only going to exacerbate and make worse. Um, so she, yeah. she'd say she never fully recovers. Yeah, it's one of the saddest parts of the story, this formidable person mm. sort of com collapsing completely. But anyway, well, now, um, at this stage, I think, I think you can get a cable to Mexico. You can. And so presumably Maximilian knows pretty quickly that the mission has failed. Fairly quickly, yeah. And at this stage, you would think, right, that's it. Now's the time to leave. Yeah. 
but it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't no. quite work out like the that. The cable's interesting. Um, the transatlantic cable, it's laid, it's laid in 1865, but then doesn't, and uh, there had been one earlier, in fact, but it's 1865 one that works, although then it stops working, comes back in 1866, you know, sort of, it's basically like bad Wi-Fi. Um, and Maximilian, he says, the scientist, he sends this rather touching telegram to Napoleon III on the 15th of August, 1866. So this is the Napoleon Day, uh, which is a sort of national holiday under Bonapartist regimes. And he says, you know, greetings and happy birthday to your uncle on uh, using the most wondrous scientific device of our age. Um, doesn't get a reply back from Napoleon III. And it's sort of, it's sort of in this tiny, small communication, it shows a lot of Maximilian's kind of naivety, his love of science, uh, and also his delusion um, in a sort of about a sentence. So that's really interesting. But you can't, but it does, it doesn't, it's not from Mexico to uh, to Europe, it's via New York. And so actually, it does take quite a long time for those messages to, ah, okay. to come back and forth. It's very unreliable. Um, but he, yeah, he gets the message in, in towards the end of October. So she, this, this whole episode happens sort of beginning and a few weeks later, he, he finds out. His universe shatters and he does, Russell, exactly what you said he should do. He, he decides to abdicate for the second time. I mean, remember, he'd only stayed there because of Carnota. So he, um, you know, he's, he's very quickly decides to abdicate. Uh, he leaves Mexico City. His furniture is packed up. His archive is packed up. Uh, and in fact, all of that is shipped to Europe. Um, but he doesn't leave immediately. He goes to uh, a town near Veracruz so that he can more quickly get information from Europe. Uh, and also, of course, he's decided to leave. So he's ready, ready to leave. You can't stay in Veracruz because it's, um, it's, uh, yellow fever is, is prevalent there. And so it's sort of death house for any European travelers. So he's in the, in the sort of hills outside, um, but not far away. He decides to abdicate, but, um, he is eventually talked round, um, by a number of people, not least his conservative allies who know that if he leaves, as you said earlier, they have now realized that, um, you know, it might be okay to oppose the empire while the empire survives because you can change the policy of the empire. If the empire goes, and of course, if the emperor leaves and the empire is, is finished, then Benito Juarez's liberal regime will take over and, uh, you know, there will be an even worse situation than they would have been under Maximilian. And so they are determined to fight a civil war come what may. They give him all kinds of promises. They promise ten, you know, sort of ten, tens of millions of dollars, tens of thousands of men. They they argue um, that once the French army has gone, counterintuitively, their fortunes will revive because the despite not having the French army, the, they won't have the taint of foreign intervention. And so Maximilian, again, does what um, anyone who's indecisive and prevaricates will do. He summons his ministers and advisors, council of state, to the town he's staying in um, to hold a meeting and they will vote on the future of the empire. I suppose, you know, for British listeners, this is the no confidence vote. Um, yeah. Uh, and rather than listen to his the deliberations of his ministers and advisors, he actually goes butterfly hunting, um, which is something he's wanted to do at kind of key moments, <laughs> uh, which doesn't <laughs> reflect well on him. But, you know, maybe he wanted them to speak independently, you know. And he, uh, the, the, the result of that vote is that he should stay, um, uh, uh, as, as emperor of Mexico and he is taught around. But the French Bazaine basically says they're going to kill you, right? Bazaine has no illusions. Bazaine has no illusions. Napoleon III sends one of his you know, top aides to Mexico as well to convince Maximilian to abdicate. The French are convinced that once they leave, the empire will swiftly collapse. Uh, and Bazaine and, and says something which is inherent, which is absolutely true, is once, once the French go, you will no longer be emperor of Mexico. You will merely be the head of a faction fighting a civil war that you will likely lose, um, which is rather prophetic. But so Maximilian has now has a deep hatred for the French um, because Napoleon III has abandoned him in his eyes. Um, I mean, and, and in fact, you know, he's not wrong in that. He also, there's also the Mexican conservatives, very critical of French policy. And he had a very um, difficult relationship with Bazaine because, of course, he's emperor of Mexico. But unlike most emperors, he's not commander in chief of his own armed forces. And military policy always is, is from Paris. And in fact, actually, a lot of other policy is, is, often, is quite dictated from Paris. Um, by this point, his hatred of the French probably blinding him to the good advice that he's getting from the likes of Bazaine. And um, in fact, he actually refuses, you know, this is a sort of sign of the kind of petulance. He now refuses to speak in French as well. So, um, you know, when his French officers come to him, he'll answer them in Spanish, um, which is, you know, like, so goes the sort of, you know, within all of the kind of chaos and, and grandeur of the drama and sort of moments of pettiness that are quite, quite enjoyable, I think. Does he have any chance in the war that follows because he then marches back to the capital? Yeah. He he has Mejia. So 
so they organize their forces and and they push out north to confront the liberal armies uh so so what's next right so uh well does he have a chance is a great question um the chance they think that he has rests on his, his on 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 his generals. So you have we mentioned uh, Thomas Mejia. You've also got Leonardo Marquez and another guy Miguel Miramon. And these are the, the three uh, the, alongside Maximilian. They all begin with M, which because the, the imperialists sort of think oh, it's some kind of sign. And actually, they've got another one called called Mendez. So they've got five M's. Um, <laughs> it's, I suppose it's if you know your nineties football, it's a sort of um, Sheringham and Shearer, the SAS. That's the sort of hope that they're. They're, 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 they're applying. They are good generals. Um, but Benito Juarez has got plenty of good generals. In fact, one called Mariano Escobedo, who's going to become important in our story. He, he might have had a chance if the conservatives have delivered on the promises that could partially convince him to stay, right? If they could get hold of tens of millions of dollars and tens of thousands of men, they don't. So the plan is a desperate one. Um, they are going to march out to what had been an imperialist stronghold, a town called Queretaro. Uh, and Queretaro is um, about 130 miles northwest of Mexico City. It's where Tomás Mejía, it's the region where he's from. Uh, and as I say, conservative stronghold, lots of convents and churches. And, you know, it's the sort of centre of, of Catholic um, conservatism, popular conservatism. Maximilian will, will march out a relief force because the forces under Mejía and Miramón um, are a beleaguered and about to be, you know, uh, uh, attacked by, by Carristas. Um, uh, but it's on the 13th of February that Maximilian is going to lead out this relief force with Leonardo Marquez, who's another one of the M's. And he only has 1,500 men, so 1,500, and they're only able to scrape together 50,000 pesos. And pesos is, is exactly the same as a dollar, so it's $50,000. Um, that he has, which is, which is nothing. Um, and the other thing is that he has to march this force out. So, so sort of, um, uh, his, his authority has dwindled so much that he doesn't control the countryside between what essentially is London and Birmingham, but much more, you know, much, much more rough terrain than that. And it's hilly country and it's controlled by Juarez de Guerrilla. So he's constantly fighting, um, to get this fort, this, this military convoy through. It resembles much more an armed crowd than an army as we might think it, because many of these men have just been taken off the streets of Mexico City and sort of press ganged into this army. They don't have uniforms. You know, it's just, it's the poorest of the poor. You know, there's the beggars, the homeless, they're just rounded up and wow, now you're in the imperialist army. And that is something that Maximilian had been one of his flagship policies was to end forced conscription. So he's, he's in, in real, um, you know, kind of, he's, he's, it's real desperation, desperate measures. So, and the plan is not a good one. Um, the plan is that he will lead the small relief force, meet up with the larger imperialista army, which, by the way, is about 9,000 men. And with him as commander-in-chief, no longer um, encumbered by French um, troops and, and, and authority, he will lead the army to a glorious victory over the Far Easters, um, and that will restore confidence throughout Mexico in the empires. So it's a, it's, you know, it's a last gasp. Hurrah. It's... The, the problem with having so many good generals is that they all have very conflicting plans. So although Maximilian is commander-in-chief, he he brings his usual indecision to the role, which is to have a council of war, discuss, you know, for days on end what they should do. And there's difference of opinion. Miramon argues that what there are three Juarista armies converging on Carretero, on the town which they're, 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 they're in. They'll be under siege by about thirty to 40,000 troops, so outnumbered at least three to one. Miramon says we march out and we defeat each army individually because they're not they're they're coming from approaching from different different sides of, of the town, but it's it's Miramon's advice is ignored. Marquez is is in in favour of this man called Leonardo Marquez who argues we should wait for reinforcements. Those reinforcements never come. Uh, the city has been under siege and it's a disastrous place to be under siege because it's three sides surrounded by heights. The imperialists don't have the men to occupy those the, the high ground, the hills. So the Parisa artillery sets up on these hills, and everywhere within the town is now under in range of, of Parisa artillery. And a siege begins in the beginning of March. What do they do now? Do they try to escape? They don't. So what? What initially the town is fairly well supplied, and they they do have troops in Mexico City. And in fact, Leonardo Marquez, who we just mentioned, he's the he's the sort of now the sort of nominal second to Maximilian. Um, and he had insisted that Maximilian's foreign volunteers, Maximilian had thousands of foreign volunteers from Belgium and Austria. Most of those have gone home, but some, the sort of diehards, are still in Mexico City and they form a very effective fighting force. So Marquez argues, well, what we'll do is we'll, those are the reinforcements, they will come and they'll break the siege. 
And Marquez is actually able to break out of the siege with about a thousand men. And so they're not too worried uh, initially, Maximilian and the rest of the of, of the Imperialist army, because they managed to break out fairly easily. So you can do it with a thousand men. You can probably do it with 9,000 men if you have to. But more importantly, they're waiting for reinforcements. And this, this is a sort of, these are Aust- Austrian and, and, um, and Belgian um, soldiers who've been fighting for three years. This is not the people scraped off the streets. They're, they're well, they're relatively well armed, equipped and trained. So they're hopeful that that force will, will come and break the siege. But weeks go, it's meant to be two weeks. Um, two weeks comes, no sign of Marquez. Three weeks, no sign of Marquez. Four weeks, etc. And in fact, Marquez isn't coming back. He's disobeyed orders. He's gone to Puebla to try and break another siege. Um, in, in seeing himself as sort of the savior of the empire, uh, and he's defeated disastrously. And the force that's meant to relieve Maximilian is defeated, and then itself becomes besieged in Mexico City. So then they try and break out. They very nearly do manage it um, on on one occasion, but they're too slow to to they, the, to, to kind of um, to get their act together and actually march out towards Mexico City. And then you know, it's, um, if they had done, it's very unlikely they would have been able to achieve anything. And so yeah, it ends. It ends well, very dramatically, but um, it ends with Maximilian surrendering. Yes, he's betrayed, isn't he, by somebody who lets the uh, the liberal forces into the into the town, and he's sort of grabbed, uh, if I remember it right. That's absolutely right. So he's betrayed by one of his most loyal officers, a man called Miguel Lopez, and uh, who goes across into the Juarista lines and essentially leads the Juarista forces into the Imperialist uh, citadel, the stronghold, a, a convent where the headquarters are, standing down Imperialist guards. Um, Maximilian is bizarrely is allowed to, um, is not captured at that moment and makes a final stand on a nearby hill overlooking the town called the Hill of the Bells, um, which is going to be significant. Um, uh, but he sees below him the town is overrun he asks Mejia if they can break out, and Mejia says, "I don't care for my own life, but I'm not going to lead a suicidal charge that would, would that would that would kill you." Um, and Maximilian is is eventually surrenders to Mariano Escobedo, as we say, and that's a quite extraordinary moment as Maximilian Habsburg, born in the Imperial Palace of Vienna, um, surrenders his sword to Mariano Escobedo, a sort of uh, a farmhand from. Um, northern states of Mexico, Nuevo León, and you've got this sort of hugely symbolic moment as European royalty surrenders to a former Mexican farm farm labourer. So Maximilian, he's now a prisoner. So what are they going to do with him? Right, well, Maximilian, fairly hopeful that he'll be let off because you don't normally execute heads of state. Um, the two kind of opposite examples would be Napoleon I, who despite having the entire continent of Europe uh, ranged against him, was put into exile not once but twice, right? Um, you think the first time, okay, mm. but once you come back, then they... Mm. But no, he's, he's executed twice. Uh, sorry, he's exiled twice, not executed. It, it, and in the US, you've just had uh, a civil war where Jefferson Davis, as president of the Confederacy, has committed the most egregious act of treason possible against the Union. He's imprisoned and then eventually pardoned an amnesty. So Maximilian is initially fairly confident. Uh, but Benito Juarez is made of sterner stuff than either um, you know the, those in charge of the Union or indeed all of the monarchies of Europe because he wants to end a civil conflict that has been raging in Mexico since at least 1857. So you've got 10 years of conflict between liberals and conservatives. Uh, and so he um, he's keen to have Maximilian court-martialed and it's a show trial. Uh, it's held in an actual theatre and the theatre, and this will be, a, you know, as I say, we keep giving tests to the listeners, so this will be a really good test. The theatre is is called, is named after Itabide, who was the first emperor of Mexico, who was shot. So it's not very subtle. It's political theatre. It's not very subtle. Maximilian actually manages to get out of the trial. He claims he's too sick and ill. And he is. He's very sick and ill. He's been suffering from fevers. He's got dysentery. Um, his doctor thinks he might have malaria. He's taking opium pills for the pain. So he's not been well or indeed, um, you know, very particularly compensamentous for some time now. He's excused from the trial, but the trial lasts a day and a half. I mean, it's, you know, it's nothing. Um, and the deliberation is, and it's a court martial, not a civil trial. And they're, they're junior officers in the Mexican Republican Army. And it's no surprise that they come to the verdict of execution. They've decided to execute Maximilian. And as I recollect it, the Americans are sending messages saying, don't carry it out. The Europeans are sending messages. So, so what do they do and why? Yeah, so the, the United States of America is very keen um, and uh, not for, for Horace not to execute Maximilian and makes very diplomatic pressure on him. Of course, the European courts say the same thing. 
uh, prominent Republicans like uh, Garibaldi from Italy, Victor Hugo from France, write to, to Juarez and say, you know, you'll stain the cause of republicanism if you execute Maximilian. But again, as I said, Benito Juarez doesn't care. Um, he has got, he is thinking about what's Mexico and Mexican politics. And he argues that it's necessary for the future of the Republic. And we focus on Maximilian. Of course, my book focuses on Maximilian. Hmm. He's executed alongside Tomas Mejia, who we've mentioned a few times, and, and Miguel Miramon. Now, Miramon uh, uh, was the leader and indeed president of the Conservative Party in the Civil War before Maximilian. And Mejia had fought on, for alongside Miramon and, of course, alongside Maximilian. And you've got three men who represent different strands of conservatism in Mexico. Miguel Miramon is, is, is what we call the Creole elite, i.e. he's descended from Spaniards uh, and is sort of gentry uh, aristocracy of Mexico. Tomás Mejía, indigenous, representing popular, pious conservatism um, and rural uh, um, movements that support the Conservative Party. And Maximilian who, of course, represents European monarchy and foreign intervention. And it's this is a sort of unholy alliance for Benito Juarez that has constantly been preventing Mexico becoming the modern secular liberal state he thinks it needs to be. And quite frankly, he has had enough. And this is his way of saying that that form of conservatism and that challenge to, to the liberal Republic of Mexico uh, will never, ever rise again. And in that, it's fairly successful because, um, you know, even to this day, the conserv- you know, the word conservative is, and you see this with the current president of Mexico, is, is an insult um, not a million miles away from how we might describe someone as a fascist. Uh, he, the, the sort of the, a, a, as a meaningful political project, conservatism in Mexico is ended by by this conflict and by these executions. So as I say, Benito Juarez, you know, as much as Maximilian and Carlota and uh, Napoleon III is convinced of his destiny, and Benito Juarez's destiny is to end a decade of civil conflict and and for liberalism to triumph. I feel, just because you get invested in the story, I feel terribly sorry for Maximilian, Mm. but I, I do find it hard to forgive him for continuing a war once it's lost and all these people that he brings you know you know the, the just the ordinary soldiers his generals all these people who are brought to their deaths by his by his naivety by his foolishness and by i guess his vanity mm. you're you're absolutely right and uh i think you know the the first one the first time he doesn't abdicate you can perhaps forgive he's you know his what well, carlos is terrifying but also there's a plan and if that plan works, maybe there's a future. The second time is, um, yeah, it's I, it's understandable, but it's difficult to forgive. And it's tied to these 90, as you say, he, he essentially brings thousands of people down with him and, and needlessly prolongs the conflict. I suppose if you, to look for sort of, um, you know, explanations, he's isolated, he's deluded, he's, he's, he's sick. But also it's this idea of honour. It's a a 19th century idea of honour, which I think is quite hard. Well, I know it's quite hard for a contemporary audience to to think about. So I'm, you know, I'm a terrible coward and I would have, well, I would never have gone. But if I had gone, I would have abdicated, you know, probably when I got there. (laughs) And I, you know, no, no, no honour would would not even be, wouldn't even enter my head that there was such, such a thing. For a Habsburg who's grown up with this, this, I, these ideas of, of, of the, 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 the name of Habsburg and, and honor is central. A phrase that is often used against him and he himself uses is a true Habsburg never leaves their post. This is something that he said um, in one of his Independence Day speeches. But it's something I think, and, and, and also just to illustrate it, um, when Carlotta, the death of Maximilian is kept from Carlotta for about six months because her family are too worried about her mental state. When she is told, she's distraught, throws herself into the arms of her sister-in-law. But she says that, you know, the, the pain of Maximilian's death is offset by the honour in which he faced it. Now, I think if you look at the, the Manet painting, which is the famous depiction of Maximilian's death, it does seem honourable. But if you look at what the actual depiction of it was, and there's a quite good sort of early, what we call Photoshop, it's a composite photo recreating what it looks like. You know, it, it looks much more like if, you know, if, you know, Listeners might think of a sort of Western, right, where sort of three men are just put up against the wall and shot. Um, there doesn't, it's squalid. It's not honourable, um, I would say. Uh, but it is a different conception. And Maximilian would have, would have seen, it, seen it as honourable. Uh, he's fond of quoting the line, all is lost, save honour, which I'm going to get my, um, which, was, which was by a French king defeated by Habsburg in the 16th century. I forget his name. Right, possibly Francis. I'm going to get it wrong. Anyway, that's actually a misquote. 
because the original letter that is sent by the French king is all is all, all is lost save my life and honor. I.e., so the, the the man he's quoting didn't die. He's lost. Yeah, it was he, he surrendered, um, but he didn't die. Whereas Maximilian thinks it's going to be heroic to die. The, so, yeah, I it, 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 he's he's weak. I think ultimately, and that yeah, yes. he, he's he's too easily persuaded by Mexican conservatives, and he's too worried about his honor uh, and what people will think of him back in Europe. What's the fate of, of the man who sort of sent them out on this mission? What happens to Napoleon III? It's extraordinary what happens to Napoleon III in the sense that it's a slight, on a sort of a, on a larger scale and in a much shorter time frame. Napoleon III sort of goes through exactly what Maximilian did. So in 1870, the Franco-Prussian War breaks out uh, and Napoleon III um, is, despite being extremely ill and, and not up to the job, becomes commander-in-chief. Uh, he marches out, although not like Maximilian because he's actually driven out in extreme luxury, um, you know, by, first by train and then by carriage with enormous sort of baggage trains. Um, so he's not quite, um, not quite, Max- I mean, what, what you have to say about Maximilian at the end is he's very brave and he's sharing the absolute hardship of his troops. Napoleon III isn't quite, because I say he's in luxury, but he goes to the town of Sedan on the French-German border um, and is encircled by a much larger and powerful German army. Um, he holds out for two days. Maximilian held out for 70 <laughs> days plus. Um, but, but, but um, what, Ma- what Napoleon III does do, which Maximilian doesn't, is he is Napoleon III realizes that the game is up and that if he they could fight on or they could try and break out, but he knows that tens of thousands of French soldiers will die, and so he does actually uh, surrender, full well knowing that it will be the end of his regime. So you might say that actually, by a twenty first century conception, that that's a more that's a that's a, that's a more honourable thing to do, and so his regime you know, collapses and is, is sort of reviled in, in, he is reviled, uh, and his regime is reviled in French, um, history for, for quite some time because he is seen as a, as a, as a traitor, um, to the, to the country responsible for this disastrous defeat. Bazin, um, the French commander in chief, he actually becomes, of Mexico, he becomes the commander in chief of the French army of the Rhine, essentially the only organized military force that's left after the Napoleon III's defeat at Sedan. And, um, in again a sort of bizarre, you know, reenactment, if you will, of what happens to Maximilian. He surrendered. He he also surrenders his army, but this is seen as treason, and he is actually put on trial in 1873 and sentenced to death. Although that that, that is eventually commuted to exile. Um, oh no, sorry, imprisonment, and then he escapes from prison. So both Napoleon III and Bazaine very much got a taste of what Maximilian uh, himself went through um, only three years later. So Napoleon III, he ends up, I think, in England to live out a few more years of his life. Where does Bazaine end up? Does he also end up in England? It seems like we're the refuge of all these people. No. So he, yeah, Napoleon III ends up in Chislehurst in this rather beautiful golf club. Um, today, a golf club wasn't there, of course, called, called Camden Place. <laughs> and it's just, you know, and it's a wonderfully, it's a wonderfully bucolic um, and lovely, sleepy kind of English, English still sort of really village, even though it's, you know, it's suburb of London, I suppose. It's an extraordinary place for a Bonaparte to live out his life, but he does. Um, he dies in 1873. He is also, he like, well, much worse than Maximilian. He's very ill. Um, he's got, um, bladder stones, which is incredibly painful. And it's actually a botched operation that ends up killing him, which must have just been agony. So if, if you've come away, um, you know, with the idea that Napoleon deserves the third deserves some kind of comeuppance. Um, I think you'd probably argue that with the Franco-Prussian War and, um, and, and, you know, this kind of uh, agony that he dies in is probably, probably, um, gets that. But then he, so his first wife was, um, Spanish and then his second wife is Mexican. His, his second wife is what, 16 when he marries her? Yeah, 17 and he's 54 off the top of my head, but certainly in his mid fifties. So, and even by the standards of the 19th century, that causes, uh, uh, quite a lot of, um, raised eyebrows, not least by Maximilian and Carlotta, uh, who think it's quite ludicrous. Um, his wife ends up, so she, she obviously, um, it was an advantageous match in the sense that Bazin was the most powerful man in Mexico and one of the most, most powerful people in France. Uh, but, you know, he become, he dies in abject poverty in a sort of, you know, very insalubrious conditions in, in Mex, in, sorry, in Spain. And his wife actually leaves him, goes back to Mexico. And he doesn't die till, I think it's 1888. And when he does, the French press is, is sort of delights and sort of headlines like, hooray, death of a traitor. And, uh, it's an extraordinary sort of journey that he goes on. Um, and yes, I say, dies in squalor and poverty, um, in, in, in Spain. What happens to Eugenie? Well, Eugenie, she lives um, for a long time. I think off the top of my head, she 
dies only in 1920. So again, these sort of Carlotta and Eugenie, the, uh, in, the sort of imperial throwbacks that live on into the 20th century, which I always think is quite remarkable. But it's the, the Prince Imperial, which is the son of, of, of Napoleon III and Eugenie, who sort of has the full turnaround of the Bonaparte um, kind of sort of fam- family legacy, because he dies in the British army fighting <laughs> in the Zulu Wars in South Africa in 1879. So, so I say kind of... Um, bizarre to think that the what I suppose would be the great nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte um, and the you know the next in line the Napoleon the fourth had it gone that way is killed in British army uniform good for Eugenie she was another of the very powerful women in the story it's uh she was and she blamed herself um, for the Mexican uh, intervention because she was instrumental in bringing it about and indeed alighting upon Maximilian as, as the candidate. That was very much her who, who was pushing that. So she she expressed regret afterwards, did she? She did, and she bore full responsibility, although she was very careful in trying to rehabilitate and manage the reputation of, of, her, of her husband and the Bonapartist legacy. So one must take what she says with a pinch of salt. She was a sort of soul-surviving comms director of Bonapartism. <laughs> um, so so she, she's careful She's careful to massage the, the image. But it's true that she played an instrumental role because she was Spanish, which I probably should have mentioned. She was Spanish, Spanish, Spanish aristocrat. And she had this kind of nostalgic view of, of the Spanish Empire in Mexico and also um, was a staunch Catholic. So she very much bought into the idea that the Catholic Church in Mexico was under attack from impious atheist liberals and therefore um, was able to provide access for Mexican conservatives to the French court and push them in front of Napoleon III. So she does play a key role. But apart from Eugenie, for everybody else involved in the plan, you know, it all ends pretty miserably, doesn't it? It does. Well, and Carlotta, she doesn't die until 1927, which I always think is extraordinary. And, you know, obviously the book focuses on this extraordinary period in her life from the age of about 17 to 25. But most of her life she spends in in seclusion and and semi-delusion and, and uh, incredibly sad and, and lonely existence and um, lingering on into the well into yeah 1927 so on that slightly uh slightly depressing note <laughs> we should bring yes. the podcast to a close thank you so much edward that was uh that was that was great no thank you very much i've really enjoyed it thank you Well, that's the end of today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, then I have a big favor to ask. I don't look to make any money from the podcast. There's no advertising or anything like that. I just do this because I enjoy speaking to the guests. And, you know, I'm keen for them to get as big an audience as possible because I think, you know, they are really, really good people. So if you could share it on whatever social media channel you use, tweet it out, whatever it is. And even better, if you could leave a review on iTunes, that would be absolutely fantastic. Anyway, goodbye for now.